Tonight we're going to study together John chapter 10, verses 11 to 18. Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd. Let's read these seven or eight verses. Begin at verse 11. I am the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But he that is an hireling, and not the shepherd, whose own sheep are not, sees the wolf coming, and he leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches them and scatters the sheep. The hireling, the man that's only hired, a hired employee, flees because he is an hireling and cares not for the sheep. But I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I am known of mine. And the Father knoweth me, even so I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep have I that are not of this fold. Them also I must bring. They shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd, or there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Therefore does my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man takes my life from me, but I lay it down to myself. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority or the right to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. And here's probably the finest statement in the Bible on Jesus Christ, the good shepherd. One look at two or three things. First of all, the claim. Just as it is on your outline from last week, first the claim. I am the good shepherd. Now, you know, this is the fourth I am in the Gospel of John. The first one is in John chapter 6. I am the bread of life. The second one in John chapter 8. Uh, what was that? I am the light of the world. Then that's the second. What is the third one? I am the door. The fourth one, I am the good shepherd. The fifth one, I am the resurrection, the life, John 11. Then the sixth one, uh, uh, John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, the life. And then the seventh one, John 15, 1. I am the true vine. Seven I am. May I suggest that you take those seven and study them. You teach a Sunday school class and you've got some liberty. Take those seven I am sometime and make them the substance of one study each week for seven weeks. Or if you can't keep going that long, take three of them one time and three of them the next time and one of them the third time. There's enough material. You can cover all seven of them in seven weeks. So here's the claim of Jesus. I am the good shepherd. Now, by that claim, he does two things. By saying, I am the good shepherd, first, he identifies himself with the Jehovah of the Old Testament. When we think of this statement, I am the good shepherd, what do we automatically think of? Psalm 23, 1, the Lord is my shepherd. Now, when Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, immediately he was identifying himself with that shepherd in the Old Testament. Often in the Old Testament, God is pictured as the shepherd. Often in the Old Testament, Jehovah is pictured as the shepherd of Israel. The Lord is my shepherd. Now said Jesus, I am the good shepherd. And by doing so, he identifies himself with the shepherd God of the Old Testament, Jehovah's shepherd of the Old Testament. Secondly, of course, there's a contrast with false shepherds. I am the good shepherd contrast to the false one. Now, after that, he, he underscores four qualities of the good shepherd. The rest of these verses, four qualities of this good shepherd. Number one, he gives his life for the sheep, verses 11 to 13. Number two, in verse 14, he knows his sheep. 
Number three in verse 60, he has a yearning for the other sheep, the Gentiles. And then number four, the good shepherd voluntarily gives his life for his sheep. Verses 17 and 18. So there are four things, four qualities of the good shepherd. One, he gives his life for the sheep. Two, he knows intimately his sheep. Number three, he has other sheep that he yearns to bring. And number four, he voluntarily gives his life, lays down his life for the sheep. Four qualities of the good shepherd. Now let's look at the first one. First one is in verses 11 and 12 and 13. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Let's read. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But he that's in hireling, and hireling was simply an employee man. Man owned a flock of sheep. He employed another man to take care of the sheep. The other man wasn't really interested in the sheep. He was only interested in the wages he was getting. So when the wolf came, and the man had to protect the sheep from the wolf, and it might cost his life, the hireling beat a retreat. He fled. He cared nothing for the sheep. He left. Not so with Jesus. He laid down his life for the sheep. Verse 12, that he that's a hireling and not the shepherd, whose own sheep are not, sees the wolf coming and flees and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and cares not for the sheep. I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and have known them all. Now, in these three verses, Jesus underscores the main point, and that main point is that the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Now, I want you to notice three things. Of course, when Jesus says, uh, I give my life for the sheep, or the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep, he's speaking of his death, his death upon the cross. When Jesus said, I give my life for the sheep, he is thinking of his death upon the cross. Now, what, does, what do these three verses tell us about the death of Jesus? These three verses tell us three things about the death of Jesus. Now, there, we can say a whole lot more, and the Bible says a whole lot more, but these three verses tell us three things about the death of Jesus. One, demonstration. It's a demonstration of his love for sinners. Two, substitution. He died in behalf of the sheep. And three, personal. He died for his sheep. Now let's look at those three things. Three things about the death of Jesus. First, demonstration. His giving of his life is a demonstration of his love. Look at verse 12. He that's a hireling and not the shepherd, his own sheep are not, sees the wolf come and leaves the sheep and flees. The wolf catches them and scatters the sheep. The hireling runs away because he's a hireling, and he does not care for the sheep. The emphasis is that Jesus does care for the sheep, and he loves them. False shepherds runs away, but Jesus lays down his life. Now, you know in the Bible, the death of Jesus is a manifestation, probably the greatest manifestation, no doubt the greatest manifestation of the love of God. All through the history of the church, men have struggled with the uh, with the question, what is the nature of the death of Christ? Some men have said that the death of Jesus, the essential meaning of the death of Jesus, is that it is an example of God's love to sinners. That's true. 
some men have said that the death of Jesus is uh, was a payment to the devil for the men whom he held in his grasp. That was a view that was very popular in the early church for probably uh, six, seven hundred years until the days of Anselm in the 12th century. Other men have said that the death of Jesus is an example to us. Other men have said that the death of Jesus is a vicarious substitution. Now, which of these is true? Well, they all have elements of truth in them. There are probably three major theories of the atonement of Christ. One is that his uh, death was an example to us of his deep, profound love for sinners. One is that it was a conquest of the devil. And a modern-day Swedish theologian has resurrected this view of the death of Christ, the view that was held in the early church. And the other, first enunciated theologically by Abelard in the 12th century, and then by Martin Luther and John Calvin, the Protestant reformers in the 16th, is that the death of Jesus was of the nature of a vicarious substitution. He died in the place of sinners. Now, there are elements of truth in all three. Essentially, the death of Jesus was a substitution. That's the heart of it. When people ask me what words best describe the death of Jesus, I say three. Penal, substitution, satisfaction. Penal, the death he died, was a penal death. The wages of sin is death. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. And the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Sin is a violation of the law of God and renders me guilty and subjects me to the penalty of the violated law. So the sentence of death is penal. Jesus died in my place and bore that penalty in my place. So the death of Jesus was a penal death. Secondly, since he was sinless, he wasn't dying for his own sin, he was sinless. Therefore, he was dying for somebody else. That word is substitution or vicarious. He died in the place of others. Third, that death satisfied the justice of God and quenched the wrath of God. That word is satisfaction. And the Greek word for it is hilasterion, translated propitiation. And I happen to believe there's no other adequate word for that. When I get a new translation, I immediately turn to 1 John chapter 2, Romans chapter 3.25, and see how they translate hilasterion. There's really only one term that fits it, and that's the word propitiation. Propitiation. The death of Jesus satisfied the justice of God and quenched the wrath of God. So the death of Jesus was penal, vicarious satisfaction. At the same time, the death of Jesus demonstrated God's love toward us sinners. Here is love, 1 John chapter 4, verse 9. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be a propitiation for our sins. John 15, 13. Greater love has no man than this, 
that a man laid down his life for his what? Friends. But Jesus did more than that. He laid down his life for his enemies. His enemies. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. And this was the love of God manifested. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. God manifested his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For when we're yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man someone even dare to die. But God commends his love toward us that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. So the death of Jesus is, uh, is the, the greatest visible manifestation of God's love to us. And what gives us that uh, quality, that it's visible representation of God's love for sinners, is that Jesus was God. If Jesus Christ is only a man, then the death of Jesus uh, does not manifest God's love to us, because God wasn't suffering for us. Somebody else was suffering for us. The only way that Jesus' death can make a manifestation of God's love is that Jesus is God. And that we believe, and that the Bible teaches. That the one who died upon the cross was God Almighty, the second member of the Trinity. By so dying, he demonstrated his love for us. And my friend, may I suggest to you that... Uh, that uh, that answers, that serves as an answer to one of life's terrible problems. You know, we all come up against the problem sometime, somewhere in our life, where we ask ourselves, can God really love us? Some great tragedy comes into our life. I ask myself, can God really love me? If God loves me, why did he allow that to happen? If God really loved me, why did he allow that tragedy to come into my home? Our answer to that is, I don't know. Nobody does know. But that God loves us, he demonstrated. God gave his most priceless gift, the gift of his son, to demonstrate his love for us. I remember reading a story of, a, uh, of uh, an incident that took place in World War II. You perhaps remember in World War II, when a young man died overseas, they sent the news back to the local pastor or the local rabbi. And it was up to the local pastor or rabbi to go to the home of that young man and to convey the news to the mother and daddy that the young man had been killed in action. They felt that the rabbi or the pastor perhaps could do that better than anybody else. And this it is told that uh, one pastor was called upon to go to the home of a family who had lost a young man. The family didn't know it. The mother and daddy didn't know it. The only son they had was the son they lost in war. So the pastor went to the home, knocked on the door, said to them, I've come to give you some bad news. I have no other way of telling you. It's sad news. The news is that the army has informed me that your son was killed in action this past week. And the father, Bitterness, some feeling and bitterness, said to the pastor, Where was God when my son died? And the pastor very wisely said, God was in exactly 
same place that he was when his own son died. Do you think it was easy for God to give his son Jesus? It wasn't. Do you think, my friend, that you love your children more than God loves his son Jesus Christ? I don't think so. Do you think it was a great pull upon the heart of God, if we can say it reverently, for him to give his son down here to death, his spotless son to death? I don't think so. I don't think so. But God loves you and me enough that he was willing to part with his dearest Christ. If God could have found anything else in heaven or on earth, serve as a substitute for you and me. He would have given that, but he didn't. So God gave his best and his choices. God gave his son to die for his sins. Go over in the Old Testament, there's an incident about the waters being bitter. Do you remember that story, Exodus chapter 15? Remember they were on the trail, and they came to this place, and they were all thirsty. And when they began to drink, the water was very so God said to Moses, cut down yonder tree and cast the tree into the water. When you cast the tree in the water, the bitter water will be made sweet. So Moses cut down the tree and cast the tree into the great water. And by a miracle, I don't think there's anything in the tree, by a miracle, the water was sweetened and the people drank and were revived. When we come into the great difficult problems life, the tragedies of life, there's only one thing we can really do, and that is to cast in the tree. Do you know what I mean? To put the cross in there. To see all tragedy through the cross. Remember that when God brings tragedy into our life, God, because he loved us, brought tragedy into his own life. God gave his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us sinners. The death of Jesus is the evidence of God's love and of Jesus' love for us. Then we got, secondly, not only demonstration, but secondly, substitution. Back in John chapter 10. John chapter 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life, F-O-R, for the sheep. For the sheep. That means substitution. Substitution. That means that Jesus Christ died in our place. The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Substitution. Now, will you look here? The New Testament tends to use one of two prepositions. One is H-U-P-E-R, hooper, which has the idea of love, uh, of substitution, but also of care and concern. The other word is A-N-T-I, which means in the place of. So we read in Matthew 10, 45, the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom in the place of many. Jesus died as my substitute. Now you say, why are you um, ringing the changes on that? The reason I'm ringing the changes on that is that the modern religious liberal denies the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. I've got several books in my library that deal with the death of Christ. And in these, 
These men have denied that Jesus died as our substitute. My friend, that's the heart of the cross, that Jesus bore God's penalty in my place. So we sing, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Or we sing with Charles Wesley, and I love that hymn. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Did Charles Wesley and John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, did they believe in the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ? You bet they did. And that's written into the hymns of Charles Wesley. And no more finally is it written in the hymn than in that hymn, Amazing Love, How Can It Be? That thou, my God, shouldst die for me. And all through the, the Old Testament, you have the doctrine of substitution. You have the, uh, you have the skins taken from an animal whom God slew that provided the skins by which Adam and Eve could stand in the presence of God. You had Abraham taken his son up there yonder the mountain and was to slay his son, and God stopped Look over yonder, and there was a ram. And that ram was the substitute for Isaac. In Exodus chapter 12, kill the lamb, capture the blood, and sprinkle the blood. And when I see the blood, said God, I will pass over you. And all the sacrifices of the Old Testament, uh, such as the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur in modern day, you have the idea of substitution. And the Old Testament priest who put his head on the lamb or on the bullock, signifying identification and substitution. The death of Jesus Christ is a substitution for our sinners. He died in our place. Now, you know something? There are going to be a lot of people in heaven who didn't realize that. A lot of people are going to be in heaven who couldn't describe that, no doubt. No doubt. Mr. C.S. Lewis said, one of his writings, that he never came to any final conclusion about the nature of Christ's death. A man isn't saved by his theology. He's saved by trusting Christ, the Redeemer of sinners. But that's a different thing from man studying what the Bible says and openly denying that Jesus died as our substitute. And I believe the Bible, in the Old Testament type, and in the statements of the New Testament, teaches substitutionary atonement, or vicarious atonement, which means that Christ bore God's wrath in my place. Christ died in my place. And I suppose the key passage came from Jesus himself. Mark 10, 45, and Matthew chapter 20. Verse 30, I think it is. The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. Now look up here. Ransom for many. Ransom is the word lutron. A ransom price. A lutron. A ransom price on tea in the place of many. Ransom price in the place of many. 
Jesus died as our substitute. Third, demonstration, substitution, substitution, and then one more word, personal. He died for his sheep, personal. He died for his sheep. Substitution, demonstration, substitution, personal. Going back to substitution, when you go home tonight, read the book of Philemon. There's no book in the New Testament that perhaps illustrates the uh, death of Jesus as does the book of Philemon. For Philemon did it tell me. Beautiful illustration. Third word is personal. He died for his sheep. Look at, uh, look at verse 11. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Now, that's true. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. On the basis of that word, I hope you are listening to this. On the basis of that word, some people teach, along with some others, that Jesus Christ died only for the sheep, the elect. But that's not true. He died for his sheep. He also died for all men. He died for his sheep, yes. For those who are going to be saved, he died, yes. But he also died for all men. First John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Uh, my children, I, these things I write unto you that you sin not. But if any man sin, he has an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous was the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. And that doesn't say, by the way, for the sins of the whole world of the elect. That's eisegesis. That's reading into there what's not there. And then 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Now look up here. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 says that they deny the Lord and Master who, of the Rodzo, paid the price for them. Here were apostates, unbelievers, unsaved men, were not saved, never were saved, and apparently never got saved. Yet Peter says that they deny the Lord and Savior, they deny Jesus Christ, who purchased them, Agarazzo, who bought them. Did Jesus Christ die for the elect? Yes. Yes. But he also died for all men. He died both for the elect, but he also died for all men. And the Bible teaches that. Well, you know, supposing, uh, uh, supposing uh, there were ten of us in a boat. Supposing ten of us were in a lifeboat. Let's say there were 11 of us in a lifeboat, and the boat was just about going under the water. And the captain says, he got off the lifeboat with us, the captain says, this boat will not carry 11 people. It'll only carry 10 people. One of us is going to have to get out. He said, I'm going to get out. I'm going to probably drown. But if I do so, then this boat will carry the other ten of you to safety. With that, the captain jumps out of the boat. The boat comes up a little, and that boat carries us to safety. Years later, months later, 
I describe that event. I'm very moved by what the captain did. And I say to my friend, you know, the captain died for me. The captain gave up his life for me. I wouldn't be alive today had the captain not jumped over the boat. And the captain jumped over the boat and saved me. And if it had not been for the captive, captain, I wouldn't be alive. The captain gave his life for me. Now, I ask you a question. When I say the captain gave his life for me, am I denying, by saying that, am I denying that the captain gave his life for the other nine people? What do you think? No. No. Now, you're not following me, or you would answer no. If I say the captain died for me, does that deny the fact that he also denied, died, dove over, and gave his life for the other nine? Certainly he did not. He gave his life not only for me, but for all ten of us. But because it's so personal, I say the captain died for who? Me or us? Me. But he died for all of us. So Jesus died for his sheep. But when you say he died for his sheep, you at the same time do not deny that he died for all men. Christ died for the world, for all men. When you say, why are you laboring that point? Because our city is being permeated by this view that Jesus died only for the elect. And I want you to know where Mid-South Bible College stands. I believe that Jesus Christ died for the elect. He gave his life for the sheep. But at the same time, he died for all men. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, and many other passages. 1 Timothy 4.10 speaks of Jesus Christ, the Savior of all the world, especially of them that believe. So did Christ die for his sheep? Yes, yes, he did. But in saying that, he also died for all of us. Christ died for all of us. It's like this, if I would illustrate it. With a good, see if this is a little better, sheep. All men. Christ died for the sheep? Yes. But dying for the sheep, he died for all men at the same time. He died for all men, he also died for the sheep. He died for both. In fact, it would be impossible for an infinite God to die a finite death. Jesus died, he died for all men. Now, let's go on to the next statement. Not only did the good shepherd give his life for his sheep, but the good shepherd secondly knows his sheep. Verse 14. The hireling flees because he's a hireling. Verse 13, cares not for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep and I am known of mine. So the good shepherd knows his sheep, and they know him. That is, he has intimate communion with his sheep. You know, when we come to the Bible, we discover that the word K-N-O-W means a whole lot more than it normally does in the English language. We use the word know in the sense that we are cognizant of a thing. We are aware of a thing. But the word K-N-O-W, 
used by the biblical writers, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, of a very intimate, personal relationship between two people. Matter of fact, the first use of the word K-N-O-W, which sets the pattern, is Genesis 4.1. That's the first time it's used. Adam knew his wife. There it speaks of the intimate sexual relationship between Adam and Eve. And it's the word that's normally used of that relationship. So when the word K-N-O-W is used in the Bible, it means an intimate personal relationship. How many of you read Psalm 1? Now, don't raise your hand. You all have. What is the last verse in Psalm 1? Uh, the way of the wicked will perish. The way of the believer, God knows. Look at Psalm 1, the last verse in Psalm 1. The Lord knows the way. The Lord knows the way. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. Now, do you think that means? That the Lord knows the way, of, he's conscious where they're going, but he's ignorant of where unbelievers are going. No, that doesn't mean that at all. Milton here means an intimate personal relationship. So in John 17, 3, Jesus said, this is life eternal, that they might know thee. That means that they might come into an intimate personal relationship to God. Will you look here? This is life eternal. That. Now, the word that is not equal. This is life eternal. This. No, no. This is life eternal. In order that God has given to you and me eternal life, in order that we might know him who sent Jesus. In order that we might have a personal, intimate relationship with God. So what did Paul say in Philippians 3.10? That I may know intimate, personal relationship, Philippians 3.10. Of course, the greatest thing, I suppose, in all of our salvation is that we can have an intimate, personal relationship to God. You can go in prayer, in prayer, fellowship with God. You have established an intimate relationship and share with him things that you wouldn't share with anybody else. God knows you, knows you in and out, knows me in and out. And I share things with God I wouldn't tell anybody else. And you do the same thing. I wouldn't share it with anybody. I share it with God. Intimate relationship. That's why God saved us. The world simply doesn't understand that. That's totally foreign to the world. Hell and heaven make me kind of picture it. But this idea of establishing personal relationship with an infinite God is totally foreign to the world. But God saved us for that very purpose, to know him intimately, intimately, in prayer and in his word. And what does the Bible say in John chapter 4? The Father seeketh such to worship him. Number three, number one, the good shepherd gives his life for his sheep. Number two, the good shepherd knows his sheep. Number three, the good shepherd has a yearning for other sheep. Look at John chapter 10, verse 16. The good shepherd has a yearning for other sheep. John 10, 16. 
and other sheep have eyes that are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one flock. One flock. See, that's not fold, that's flock. And one shepherd. And that's important that that gets translated right. There are two different Greek words. Another sheep I have that are not of this fold. This fold is Israel. Other sheep are the Gentiles. Other sheep are the Gentiles. Other sheep, Gentiles I have, that are not of this fold Israel. Them also I must bring. They shall hear my voice. And there shall be one flock and one shepherd. So what Jesus is saying, that God has his own out among the Gentile world. Uh, you know, that comes up two or three times in the New Testament. Paul, uh, God appeared to Paul in the city of Corinth, recorded in Acts chapter 18. God said to Paul, Paul, don't get discouraged, for I have many people in this city. I have many people in this city. Who are they? Unsaved Gentiles, that God called them his people. His people. I've yet many people who are going to be saved in this city. Then Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2 about suffering, I suffer all these things for the elect's sake that they might be saved. He calls them the elect even before they're saved. So God has his people. That's a great encouragement. In mission and in evangelism, that God has his people. And God is going to accomplish that job in his people. So Jesus said, other sheep of I which are not of this fold, them also must I bring. Now, however, the balance, uh, on the one hand, other sheep of I which are not of this fold, Jesus also said, them also must I bring. The fact that God has his own out there does not absolve me on the responsibility of evangelism and soul winning. There's one denomination that doesn't believe in foreign missions because if God has his elect in China or God has his elect in South America, that he'll save them. You don't need to go down there. But that's absolutely foreign to the Bible. The Bible teaches on one hand that God knows his own. He knows what's going to happen. On the other hand, the Bible teaches that I am to go and to preach the gospel and that they won't be saved until I do go and preach the gospel and until they believe in Jesus Christ. Now you say, how do you put those two things together? And the answer is, I don't know and nobody does know, especially the man who says, I know. See? Now I'm saying that last point because don't let anybody con you into thinking that he knows. Great minds have wrestled with that through the ages. Both these things, they're what you call theology and antinomy. Antinomy, or two truths run down side by side. You can't put them together, but they're both true. We'll be able to put them together in heaven. They're together in the mind of God, but the human mind can't put them together. On the one hand, God has his own, his elect, his sheep, whom he must bring. On the other hand, they will not be brought until I go, evangelism, and until they believe in Christ, the response. Both are true. 
So other people, by which are not of this folk, them also must I bring. And we balance that with John 3, 19, 20, and 21, without looking at it. For Jesus said, this is the condemnation. The light is coming to the world, and men love darkness rather than light. Why does a man go to hell? Because he loves darkness. He loves his sin. Why does a man receive darkness? Why does a man refuse Christ? Not because he's not one of the elect. The Bible never teaches that. I believe in election, but that's not why he's lost. He's lost because he refuses to believe in Christ. The responsibility is always put on the man. He refuses. This is the condemnation, John 3, 19. The light is coming to the world, and men love darkness, sin, rather than light. And so when the Bible speaks of Judas, death, its Bible says that Judas went to his own place. Why does the Bible say that Judas went to hell? Or more accurate, technically, Judas went to Hades. The Bible could have said that. The Bible could have said Judas went to Hades, but it didn't. Why did the Bible say that Judas went to his own place? To underscore the fact, in anticipation of what goes on from time to time in modern day, that Judas was a free moral agent, that he made his choice, that he's lost, lost, and will be in hell forever because he chose against chose not to receive Christ. He chose against God. Therefore, he went to his own place. Man says to me, ask me, I will be asked you sometime. See, it's a good thing I tell the students, I hope that a couple of atheists will get hold of you and back you up against the wall real hard. Then you're going to start studying real hard for yourself. Man says, why does God punish men eternally in hell. How can a finite sin be judged with an infinite judgment? I sin. It's temporary. I sin. Maybe I live 80 years. How can I can be punished eternally for sin that I commit temporarily? Why are men lost eternally in hell? Well, many reasons. But one, above all else, men perish eternally in hell. Men are judged eternally in hell because men eternally hate God. No repentance in hell. You know what they do in hell? The Bible says they'll be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. That means that men hate God even in hell. No repentance in hell. You say that's a hard doctrine. I'll agree. I'll agree. It's a very, very hard doctrine. But my responsibility is simply this. If the Bible is the word of God, which I believe it is, if Jesus is God and spoke truth, then I have to accept it whether I like it or not. I can't pick and choose. I have to accept what, what, what it says. The real question is, is Jesus God? That's a question that's really behind this thing that was brought up in Oak, down in Dallas, when Dr. Bailey Smith 
spoke about a man having access to God. The real issue is who is Jesus? Is Jesus God? If he's God, then he speaks truth. And he said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me, contrary to what the late editor of the Memphis Presbyter said. The real question is, is Jesus God? If he's God, then I must submit. And Jesus spoke. Jesus is the one who taught the doctrine of eternal punishment. Moses didn't say much. Peter didn't say much. John, John said very little except the book of Revelation. Paul, you'll search Paul's writings, all those in vain, find something on eternal punishment, eternal hell. You know who's responsible for the doctrine of eternal hell? Jesus Christ. He's the only one that had a right to talk about it. And he talked about it with tears in his eyes. He wept over the city of Jesus. How often I would have gathered you together, but you would not. When a man perishes, he perishes because he Judas went to his own place. So Jesus said, Other sheep of I which are not of this fold, them also must I bring. I must bring. It's not enough for them to be out there. I must bring them. When William Carey, when William Carey, the cobbler, volunteered for missionary service in the Scottish church a couple hundred years ago, you know, there's a great assembly. William Carey stood up. He was only a cobbler, cobbler, shoe cobbler. He stood up in that assembly and said to them, I'm going to volunteer to go to India as a missionary. And a Presbyterian, an elder, an elder, said, sit down, young man. When God is pleased to save the heathen, he will save the heathen. No, no. Jesus said, other sheep? Yes, but other sheep I have, which are not, so I must bring them. William Carey went to India, and the modern-day mission was established with William Carey. Went to India, learned the language, learned Hebrew and Greek, just a shoe cobbler. Don't say you can't do it. He's a shoe cobbler did it. God used him greatly. And Dr. Graham told me that uh, when uh, the great Christian and Missionary Alliance mission his name slips me right now, uh, when he uh, languished in a Japanese prison near the end of World War II and eventually died in the Japanese prison. His friends, his missionary friends around him said that as this great man slowly died, his life ebbed away over a period of several months, they could hear him, sometimes completely say, Sometimes when his mind wandered away, they said he had but one prayer, and they could hear him pray it again and again. Other sheep have I of this fold. Other sheep have I which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring. The day he died, his heart filled with passion and concern for the lost in South Asia. I wonder, my friend. You and I have wept over lost sinners in other lands. You say, well, I haven't thought about it. 
Well, you and I better think about it, because you're going to think about it when you stand before Jesus Christ in judgment. Other sheep have I which are not of this fold. Them also must I bring. Jesus is in heaven today, so now he leaves that task to us. We must bring them to Christ, or else they will not come. We must bring them. Then he goes on, number four. Number four. He says, both shall be one flock. The good shepherd has a yearning for other sheep. Both shall be one flock. Let me say one other thing there. Then we're going to read out, and I want to finish off with this, with the looking at this thing. Number four, the good shepherd voluntarily gives his life for the sheep. Other sheep of I that are not of this fold, them also I must bring. They shall hear my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Therefore, voluntarily, fourth point here, the good shepherd voluntarily gives his life for his sheep. Verses 17 and 18. Therefore doth my father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man takes my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the right to lay it down, and I have the right to take it again. This commandment of I received. 